Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. As any honest fishing guide will tell you, the days and faces tend to blend together. Lost in the ether between cleaning coolers, fixing boats, tying flies, and prepping meals. But then there are those days that stand out from the rest, whether from exceptionally good or bad rapport with a client, uh, an unexpected occurrence, or exceptional fishing. And the most memorable days contain elements of all three, and I've never forgotten a particular day I had many years ago during the salmon fly hatch on the Blackfoot. To my delight, my guest hadn't forgotten it either, as I discovered when we reunited at the BHA rendezvous earlier this summer in Missoula. Ray Penny, welcome to the February Room. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, I got to thank you again for taking the time to seek me out at the rendezvous. Uh, that meant a lot to me, man. Um, it was it was really cool uh, that, that you recalled that day as I did. Um, and, uh, you know, it was one of those things like 
and I saw you there and I saw, and I'm like, gosh, I know that guy. How do I know that guy? And I was trying to put it together. And then, uh, and then lo and behold, uh, one of my buddies came up to me and he said, Hey, uh, the, the guy over at GNH decoys, um, I said, I'm sending him over here. He, he asked me if, uh, if I remembered a fishing guide by the name of Justin. So, uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's how this all came to pass, man. Yeah, was, so that was uh, super cool of you. It was a totally weird thing. I was talking to this guy and, uh, I was just, you know, we were up there for rendezvous. I hadn't been to Montana since the last time I saw you, which I, I think I was doing the math after we talked and I think it was like 16, 15, 16 years ago. And uh, <laughs> we were young. Yeah. Talking to this guy and I was saying, you know, Hey, can you give me some, you got any local, local tips you're willing to give up here for a guy who wants to maybe fish a little bit while he's out here. And, you know, I know the runoff's bad right now, but you know, where could I, where could I maybe go find a fish somewhere? And he was saying, well, where have you been? And I said, well, I came up here once. And last time I was in Montana, man, I just had a, a bang up day during the seven fly hatch uh, here on the Blackfoot. And he's like, oh, who did you fish with? And I said, oh, you probably don't know him. A guy named Justin Carnoff. And he turns around and he points at you who were standing down the way. And he said, you mean that guy right down there? And I was like, holy crap. And it was, you know, it was one of the best days of fishing of my whole life. Um, I came out there because uh, I was hosting a trip for a group of people. Uh, and we were over there at the Blue Damsel Lodge. And uh, the owner of the Blue Damsel, Keith Radabaugh, we had an odd number of people. So I was going to end up fishing on my own. And he said, Hey, I got a, you know, I got a great guide for you. I think you're really going to like this guy. And, uh, so you and I met and, uh, I seem to recall on the drive up there talking, you were talking about Oklahoma and all this stuff. And you were like, Oklahoma bass. And you said, we got, we got bass. Do you want to go catch largemouth for a day? <laughs> and, uh, so we ended up getting down to the, you know, to the Blackfoot and we ended up, uh, this, this I remember the salmon flies were just bananas, crazy. Uh, thickest hatch of insects I think I've ever seen just flying all over the place. And, uh, I got in the, I got in the boat with you and, uh, you know, I, you know, I kind of like you mentioned in the intro, uh, guides are always, you know, a little initially skeptical of, of the client when they first get in the boat, like, you know, who is this guy and who do I have today? And are we going to have a good day or a bad day? And, and you told me, you know, go cast it back in that corner. And I made the cast and then you, you gave me a little more complicated cast and you said, okay, go put it over there. And I, I ended up putting the fly where you wanted it. And after about the third one of those, you looked at me and you said, all right. You said, you can throw a fly rod. I think we're going to have a good day. And we did, man. We had a <laughs> fan-freaking-tastic day. And uh, I, I think I remember my recollection is that we caught something like, I think we caught close to 30 fish that day. We caught 28 fish or something. Uh, one of them was a really big brown trout uh, that I managed to hook right before a big rapid. And uh, you had to manage the boat through the rapid. And I was freaking out like, oh, my gosh, is this fish going to come unbuttoned while we go through this rapid? And uh, it was sort of like a rolling catastrophe until we finally got through the rough water. And uh, you beached the boat. And we actually got out of the boat to land the fish uh, and get pictures of it. Uh, but I'll, I mean, I'll never forget that. It was, it was not just one of the best days of fishing that I've ever had. But, uh, you know, the time that I had with you was one of the best guide experiences that I've ever had. Uh, fishing with a guide and I'll always remember it. Well, that's awesome, man. Yeah. The, the stars aligned. Uh, it was just that perfect combination of, of, you know, like you said, uh, a bug hatch that just doesn't happen very often on the Blackfoot. So like, you know, there's salmon flies on the Blackfoot for about a month, but, but there's only those little windows when there's enough of them to really get the fish's attention and the big fish in the river. Um, 
and you know of of angler skill of course because you're obviously a you're an extremely good fly angler um and uh and then you know we just had we had it firing on all, on all cylinders having fun telling jokes laughing and uh and yeah, it just all came together and I'll, I'll never forget that Brown and where you hooked that Brown is, you know, ever since every time that I'm fishing the Blackfoot during the salmon fly hatch, right. My, like my spidey senses go up as we approach that spot, and, but never again have, have, I, have I had a Brown of, of that size come up and eat a salmon fly in that same spot. But I always anticipate it from, from that day, yeah. um, which is, which is super cool. So yeah, yeah that was a, uh, yeah, man, perfect storm. Great memory. And you know, for a flatlander like me, uh, who doesn't, you know, we've got some trout here in Oklahoma, but it's all put and take. And I don't, I don't even bother with it anymore. Uh, I don't think I've, I've fished for, in fact, I went out the other day, striper fishing, uh, in one of the rivers that's got trout in it. And I happened to incidentally catch a trout, a very aggressive trout that ate a big size two clouser minnow. And, uh, but other than that, I haven't trout fished in Oklahoma in, I, maybe a decade because when you go and you have those experiences with guys like you and places like the Blackfoot and it's, it's not just the fishing. It's, it's like the whole ecosystem. It's, it's all of it together when you come and I'm not trying to put down my own state's trout fishing, but it's just not the same here. So for a flatlander like me to go up and have an experience like that in, in a place like Montana uh, it's uh, you know, that's, that's the story that I'll be telling the fishing story. I'll be telling my, my great grandkids when I'm an old man who can't get out of the chair yeah well that's awesome man uh yeah you know since then the the blackfoot is still a beautiful river and it still can fish well but it's gotten so much more crowded than it was in those days so um even if you did come back to fish it again during the salmon fly hatch you might be a little bit taken aback Mm. um just by the amount of traffic that we have now uh on on that river well, I'd like I'd like to try it. I'm going to look at my calendar and see if I can and get out there. And if you've got a free day, um, I'll pay for the I'll pay for the gas and the beer, and maybe let's find a chance <laughs> to like, go get back out on the water again. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's absolutely uh, the obviously the, the the boat's always open for you, um, and uh, you know you can still have really good fishing on it. You just kind of got to find those kind of shoulder season times um sure. when the tourists aren't here um mm. there's been a you know there's a new resort up there since you've been here mm-hmm. um that that puts a lot of pressure on that river as well so yeah but it, it can still fish really well in fact just a few years ago um in uh in you know may during kind of runoff um there's some periods where the river will dip and uh and if you can hit one of those um, you can find those big fish and then, you know, back in like in, in, in April and then again in, you know, October, November when everyone's kind of gone, mm-hmm. um, and the big fish do come back out to play and you can kind of have the place to yourself. But, uh, yeah. And in fact, just a number of years ago, I caught the biggest Brown I've ever caught on the Blackfoot. So they're, they're still in there. Um, they just, uh, they just kind of hide during the, the peak summer season and not just due to the the angling pressure, but, uh, there's just so many more boaters and tubers and, mm. and rafters, uh, you know, they've put a series of, uh, of campgrounds on the river. Um, and so now folks come that are just looking to raft and, and, um, which is, you know, all fine and dandy, but sure. it's just, it's just more activity that spooks the fish. Right. So yeah. they just kind of, they, they adjust accordingly. Well, um, 
Well, cool. Well, we, you already kind of told a fishing story, but uh, the floor is yours if you got another one for us. Yeah. So uh, I guess my most recent trip, and I, you know, I love I love trout fishing. I love having experiences like that one on the Blackfoot. But you know, over the years, um, my real passion has become uh, tarpon fishing, and there's just something unique about a big predator like that that you can see that you're sight fishing to, and there's there's just something. Um, this is probably going to make me sound like a sociopath, but there's something kind of violent about tarpon that I, that appeals to me. <laughs> um, yeah. There's nothing subtle or gentle about a tarpon at all. They eat and then they come flying out of the water and then they're going to do everything in their power. I mean, you know, the, it, you really got to, there's a real responsibility I think that comes with it too, because you got to handle that fish really ethically because it will kill itself to get free from you. Uh, it's, it's a fish that's willing to literally go to its death uh, to avoid uh, having you drag it up next to the boat. And uh, there's just something that appeals to me about it. I, I happened to go to, after rendezvous, uh, my mom's family's all from Puerto Rico. So we went back to Puerto Rico to go visit some family that we hadn't seen since before COVID. And uh, I had a chance to get out actually and, and tarpon fish uh, with uh, Dr. Keenan Adams, one of the uh, BHA board members uh, from the National Board of Directors. And uh, Keenan was gracious enough to take me to his honey hole and uh, we were we were catching tarpon and snook. We saw some really big snook, uh, you know, snook as, as stick around as your leg. And we saw these big tarpon that were kind of rolling uh, out in the middle of the of the channel that we were fishing. And I started to make a couple of casts, and I just had an eight weight because we were only in for you know baby tarpon and for for uh, for snook. And these tarpon were rolling out in the channel, and and I made a couple of casts. And Keenan said, "Man," he said, "Don't waste your time." He said, for whatever reason in this channel, those fish out there in the middle, it's big fish and they won't even give you the time of day. It's a waste of your time. Uh, and so I'm, I'm a pretty stubborn guy. And like the number one way to get me to do something is to tell me that it's a waste of time, uh, which is probably <laughs> evidenced by my professional current professional life. But uh, I started casting to these fish. Instead of trying to chase rollers, I just sat there in my kayak. We were in two zipper kayaks. And I just sat Oh, so you guys were just, sorry, you're, you're DIY fishing primarily. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were, yeah, cool. we were not, uh, we didn't have a boat. We were in kayaks in some of this, this sort of mangrove backwater there in a spot that Keenan's got. And, uh, so I just sat there and, and waited for a little while. Uh, and you know, I decided instead of moving around and trying to chase rollers and figure out where they're going to roll next, I'll just sit here. Somebody's bound to roll near me in the next 20 minutes. And I ended up having to wait like 10 or 15 minutes. And I finally saw this, this big fish roll and, uh, cast a tour and, uh, and hooked up with her. And, uh, you know, that, that undoubtable tarpon hook set where you just, you know, there's a fish there because the line just stops and then suddenly starts to go the other direction. And, uh, for an eight weight, she was a pretty big fish. Um, I, I think the fish was probably between 60 and 65 pounds. Uh, I've, I've, and that's not my own assessment. I've, I've shown the picture to people that I trust and they say, yeah, that's, that's probably a 60 to 65 pound fish, uh, which is a lot for, uh, for an eight weight. And, uh, it was a, it was a heck of a fight and, uh, that fish drug me around the channel and, uh, Keenan was gracious enough to get a little video of me doing it too. But, uh, it was, it was funny. He's such a nice guy. He's such, Keenan's such a friendly and nice guy. And he said, uh, he said, man, he said, you know, I've been out here a bunch of times and I've tried to catch those fish that are rolling like that out in the, in the big water and I can't make them do it. And, uh, he said, I'm, I'm really surprised, but really happy for you to see you do this. And so it was just kind of a, kind of a cool thing to, 
to get out there and and catch a fish uh, of that size on light tackle like that. And uh, I, tarpon, man, I just can't I can't get enough tarpon. Uh, as soon as I'm financially able, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hopefully move out of Oklahoma someday and go someplace where I can catch tarpon uh, 365 days a year because it's just it's totally gotten a hold of me. I don't know how to describe it. I've got the worst tarpon fever in the world. Oh man! Well, you and me both. As soon as soon as I'm financially able, I'm I'm gonna do the same thing. Yeah, it's uh, uh, <laughs> there's, there's just something, and the, you know the other part of it is I like four seasons and all that, but I love the idea of being able to wear shorts and a t-shirt every day of the year, and uh, and you know that that fishery. Yeah, there's some seasonal change to tarpon fishery, but you can almost always I think in the right places you can almost always find some backwater fish uh, to help you scratch your itch if you're in the right right places. So. Yeah. You don't hear a lot about, at least I don't hear a lot about Puerto Rico. I've, uh, you know, had a few friends that have gone there and fished a little bit. Um, so is that, uh, is that a place where tarpon fishing is somewhat prevalent now, or can you, you know, head out there and, and kind of find some water to yourself still, or what's your assessment of that? How long has it been since you've been there? Puerto Rico is a, this was the first time I'd been in a few years. Um, it's, it's kind of a conflicted place. Um, it's a, a United States Commonwealth, a territory. Um, it has a department of natural resources. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of good people, I think, working in the department of natural resources, but they're short on resources themselves. So the fisheries, uh, don't always get the management. I think that they probably deserve. Um, there's also, you know, tarpon are, are eaten for food in Puerto Rico. I mean, almost anything that swims, is eaten for, for food still. Uh, people are still, you know, gill net and bonefish and doing all kinds of things that I think most of us in the sport fishing world think are, are uncivilized. Um, I, I struggle with that because I have some Puerto Rican heritage. And so on the one hand, of course, I want there to be bonefish and tarpon available for everybody all the time to be able to go catch with a fly rod. But at the same time, like I have a lot of family there still uh, that eat those fish. And that's been a way of life for those people for a long time. And I struggle sometimes with the value uh, of, of going and saying like, Hey, we sh- these fish should, should only become available to sportsmen who are going to catch them on a, on a rod and reel. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's tricky. Um, I'm sure there's a sustainable balance in there where Puerto Ricans can still eat the fish that they're culturally accustomed to. Uh, and sportsmen can still get out and have a robust experience but it's Puerto Rico is not on anybody's radar as a big time fishing destination. And I think it's just because there's not a lot of uh, infrastructure there. Things are a little more costly in Puerto Rico than they are kind of in the rest of the Caribbean uh, because it's a, a United States territory. I mean, you get some nice, nice parts about it. It's, you know, I know there's spots in Mexico you can go fish, but you kind of have to look over your shoulder for the cartel. Um, you don't have that experience in Puerto Rico because the United States Coast Guard is all over the island. Um but at the same time, things cost a little bit more. Puerto Rico's had a bad run of bad luck in the last few years with earthquakes and hurricanes. So there's just not a lot of, I, I mean, I, I think there's like, I think there's three guys on the entire island that, that advertise themselves as, as fly guides. Um, and for, for a, I guess, whatever reason, it's just never taken off as a destination. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Um, right. You know, cause if you know the spots and you speak the language and you've got good connections, um, there's a ton of great places to go fish. You just got to be willing to, to, you know, 
drive off some some ugly dirt roads and you know what I mean wade wade a long ways sometimes but uh if you can get into the spots there's a lot of a lot of great fishing you just gotta you just gotta know where to go so yeah so it's kind of uh, a great spot for a diy kind of adventure trip it sounds like a- absolutely there's there's not a fly shop on the island so you know you better you know before we went i was up tying flies like crazy for a week trying to get ready because you can't you know it's not one of these things where you can go with like four of a pattern that you think is going to work. You better have 12 of a pattern that you think of every pattern. Uh, Cause you get there and you know, you break off enough fish or you, you hang enough flies in the mangroves. You get down to like your last fly and you're like, man, how am I, <laughs> unless you brought the time materials with you, you're kind of on your own. You can't just run down to the fly store and go get some more. Uh, but if you want a, a DIY experience, and you know, the other, the, the flip side of it that's great is it's safe. They take American dollars, enough Puerto Rican speak English that you don't have to speak Spanish to get around the island. Um, there's a, a lot of, of cool non-fishing things to see. You know, if you've got, I, I know, you know, your wife, like mine, uh, enjoys fishing as much as, as you do, it looks like. But uh, if you've got non, non-fishing companions or small kids that uh, want to have non-fishing things to do. There's plenty to see and do there, but, uh, yeah, you just got to kind of know your, your way around. If you ever want to go, uh, might be a fun trip to go down there. And just, I've never gone on a strictly fishing trip down there. I've always been down there to see family and, and do all that, but it might be fun to, to block off like maybe four or five days and just go hit all the spots. Oh man, I would love to go do that. Uh, when, when was the last time you were there, Ray? So this last summer, um, and then, before that, it had been um, over ten years. It was 2011. Um, the last time I had a chance to go, uh, I had I spent some time in the Marine Corps between when you and I saw each other last, and I went to Afghanistan in 2011, and came back from Afghanistan and spent uh, two weeks down there, just Maggie and I. So it had been uh, it had been almost uh, I guess just over a decade since I had been down there, and uh, the island has has changed a lot. Uh, some for the better, some some for the worse. But uh, the fishing, I think, is still mostly there. It's still mostly intact. So was that Hurricane Maria that devastated the island? Yeah, it was. It was Maria that devastated the island. And then uh, kind of mixed with mixed with that, there was uh, a couple of earthquakes. Um, and the, the damage from Maria and the damage from the earthquakes are all still there. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, the, you know, the, the church that my mother um, made her first communion in, in, in Ponce, big, beautiful church, several hundred years old, you know, built during Spanish, Spanish colonial time. Um, that church was kind of like a, a family mainstay for us. You know, and it's a place where a lot of important things had happened for our family. Uh, the earthquake was, uh, I think all that happened in, yeah, gosh, if I'm not wrong, like 2017 and the church is still closed. Wow. And, uh, there's, you know, it's, it's been kind of a disaster, uh, in a kind of a perpetual disaster state. Actually, I think the hurricane was 2017. I'm probably getting the dates wrong. Uh, but all of that has kind of happened in the last five years and there's still a lot of infrastructure that's not been rebuilt and things that are still, uh, shut down, uh, in Puerto Rico, but people are kind of making the most of it. Um, I think, you know, I was at my aunt's house and just asking her about the whole, the whole thing after, after hurricane Maria, and when we, you know, you think about hurricanes hitting the U.S. Uh, down on the Gulf Coast and so forth. And like I have family down in Texas and they're like, oh, my gosh, we didn't have power for five days. My aunt in Puerto Rico 
didn't have power for over six months. Wow. Like no electricity in her house for six months. Probably no cell phone, nothing. They didn't have water in a lot of places or anything, right? I mean, it was just kind of- Right, yeah. Yeah, For, for I think she told us that for, for like two months, if she wanted water, she had to get plastic jugs and drive someplace and go fill up the jugs at a place where where somebody had water. Um, you know, I think fortunately, Puerto Ricans helped Puerto Ricans and everybody looked out for each other. Uh, and most folks, you know, made it through. Uh, the culture is, is very generous there, but uh, they did not have a, you know, the, the most interesting part of it has been, you drive down the streets and you look at the power lines and people were so desperate to get power that people were just rigging it themselves. Wow. And so there's this like series of this like mesh, mangled mesh of wires on these posts Holy in, a, in a regular neighborhood, in like a middle class suburban neighborhood. Um, you know, the kind of the kind of middle class suburban neighborhood you would expect to see in in a, a city like Dallas. And there's this like mesh of wa- of electrical wires where people got so tired of waiting for the utility to come hook up their electricity that they found somebody who knew how to do it and just ran their own line. Wow. It's kind of crazy. Wow, that takes uh, ingenuity and uh, and cojones too. Yeah, absolutely, cojones. That's the right way to put it. <laughs> well, cool. So, but did you grow up in Puerto Rico, or did you grow up in the states? I didn't. I, I grew up um, actually living. Um, I was born in in Miami. I lived in Houston as a as a kid for a while, and then my dad had a job in the uh, oil field that took us to Venezuela for some years, and uh, so we lived in Venezuela. For seven years, we lived in Argentina for a year, and then I came back to the states to finish uh, high school and, and go off to college. And uh, so I, you know, I had a, a really interesting childhood. And I, I like, you know, I've, I've caught a lot of largemouth bass, especially considering myself a native Texan and now an Oki transplant. But I caught uh, peacock bass before I ever caught largemouth bass. Oh wow! Yeah. And, uh, my dad was a—he's a, a big-time hardware angler. He likes bait casters and big plugs and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I got into fly fishing uh, sort of in my very early 20s and decided that, you know, I was going to, you know, do something different than what my old man did. I, you know, everybody wants to rebel against their dad and, and do something different. You know, my dad <laughs> never showed me how cool this fly fishing stuff was. And now I've got kids of my own and my sons are have turned into the most diehard hardware guys in the world. I can't I can't force them to pick up a fly rod. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess that's just the, the way of the world. So did you did you fish when you were in Venezuela and Argentina as well as a kid? We did. Um, we were only in Argentina for like a year, um, and I didn't get a ton of opportunities to fish while we were there. That was a really quick year. But in Venezuela, uh, my dad uh, sort of did the work and made a lot of contacts. And uh, we used to go to a lake called Camatagua in Venezuela on a regular basis. It was like it was like an hour and a half from the city of Caracas where we lived. And my dad, uh, my dad is you know all-american trailer trash from ada oklahoma but uh he uh spoke enough spanish that you know he he started to kind of explore it and diy it himself and made contact with some local guys down there near this lake who would take us out fishing you know in aluminum john boats and uh he became the guy at his company when they wanted to do client entertainment like oh you know his name is is ray he's ray senior to say you know ray senior's got a great spot he can take you to his peacock bass spot and so my dad used to, to be kind of the client entertainment guy for his company. He took a lot of people down there to Kamatagua, and uh, I got to I got to tag along as a kid. Uh, we did, you know, we went offshore a fair amount too. You know, the price of gasoline was like, I'm not exaggerating, it was like 10 cents a gallon, I think, when we lived there for gasoline. And so going offshore was not an expensive experience. 
And uh, so we would go offshore from time to time with some some friends of my dad's. And uh, so I had some pretty cool experiences as a, as a very young kid uh, that I think a lot of kids don't don't get. But I didn't get, you know, like I don't think I caught a uh, I guess like maybe I caught some trout when I was like six or seven years old before we moved overseas. Uh, but I didn't really go trout fishing, trout fishing uh, until I was uh, almost 20. I think I was 18 or 19 before I really went rainbow trout fish to the United States. So I kind of got all my experiences backwards. Yeah. I was going to say, um, yeah, nowadays all the, all the folks that grew up trout fishing and are accustomed to trout fishing want to go do all the stuff that you got to experience first. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it was a, it was a great childhood. I'm, I'm really fortunate to have lived that way. Uh, I want to give those experiences to my kids as soon as I can, can get an opportunity to do it. Yeah, man, that's a really, uh, that's an interesting, interesting childhood you had for sure. Um, and then, so as you mentioned, uh, when we met, you were hosting a trip um, and you were working for Orvis at the time. So how did you uh, turn your your love of, of fly fishing uh, into into that career? How'd that come to pass? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I was worried after college, um, I went to go work for some family friends uh, at a manufacturer's representative business. And I was selling industrial fiberglass grading up and down the Texas coast. Uh, and so because I was traveling up and down the Texas coast all the time, uh, you know, if I had sales calls from, uh, you know, nine o'clock in the morning till noon, uh, I'd go sneak out and fish from, you know, noon to four or five. I only had, you know, either no kids or one kid at the time. So I'd go, you know, take a pair of shorts and my, my wading boots and I'd go wade the flats for redfish or something. So I was always into the the Orvis store, which was the kind of the Orvis store there in the Woodlands, Texas, which was kind of the closest place to my house down the down the road in the next town over. And uh, I was always buying fly tying materials. And I kind of hated that job uh, selling fiberglass grading. And I got to know the folks in the Orvis store and uh, they did not know this, but I had been been fired from my job uh, as a salesman uh, only a few weeks before because I got crossways with the boss. And I happened to go in there to the Orvis store to, I don't know, go buy some tinsel or some thread or something to tie some flies. Uh, and the guy, the manager of the store said to me, he said, man, you're always in here. Uh, would you like a job here? And I, th- I thought he was kidding at first. And I said, oh, you know, real funny. And he was like, no, seriously, we need a fishing manager in this store. He was a like a lifelong retail guy, but he didn't know the first thing about fishing. They didn't have anybody in there that could be kind of like a subject matter expert. And uh, so they offered me a job. Uh, it ended up paying um, more more money than I was making on the, the fiberglass grading sales job. Uh, it was closer to my house. And I didn't get to go uh, fish during, you know, my regular sales trips, but I got a ton of opportunities. I mean, you know, that, that trip I took out there to Montana, that was a, was a hosted trip. Orvis was a great company to, uh, to work for. And they were a great company to, uh, to you know, to, to sort of grow with. Uh, I ended up leaving them uh, because I'd always had this desire to join the Marine Corps ever since I was a kid. And I realized after a few years of, of Orvis that I like I was 25 at that point. Um, I had never you know, sought out this goal. So I left Orvis and, and uh, went off and joined the Marine Corps and spent seven years doing that. Wow, interesting. Um, and then let's get uh, let's get to where you are today um, at, uh, at the rendezvous. You kind of gave me a synopsis of, of the company that you're with. Um, obviously there's a lot of crossover between fly angling and waterfowling. Um, so, uh, tell me about, uh, about G and H decoys. Give me a little background on the history of this company and how you became involved with them. 
Sure. So uh, GNH is the oldest manufacturer of a production waterfowl decoy in the United States of America. Company is uh, 88 years old. Will turn 89 uh, this coming March. Uh, company was founded by a man named John Gazalski, uh, who who started the company right after uh, FDR signed the Duck Stamp Act, uh, which we all know created the Duck Stamp. But a uh, less known fact is that the Duck Stamp Act made it illegal to use live birds as decoys. You know, you couldn't just tie a string on their leg anymore and put them out in front of you. And uh, so John Gazalski, I think, saw an opportunity to decoys have been around for for, se- for centuries, millennia. I think you know, I think. Cavemen first uh, used decoys made out of straw or something to get ducks and geese to get close to them. So the decoy wasn't a new idea, uh, but sort of mass producing decoys and making them affordably enough uh, for people to be able to buy was, I think, kind of a new idea in 1934. And when you really think about what Oklahoma was in 1934, it's kind of crazy that the business started here. We were like in the peak of the Dust Bowl days. Uh, this was before the New Deal, so there were we had literally zero lakes in Oklahoma. It was a big, wide open, dry piece of earth, and uh, this guy had the idea to to make decoys, and the company has has persisted to this day uh, in Henrietta, where I'm sitting now, as we we record this podcast. So John's son Dick took the business over sometime in the 70s or 80s, I think. We don't we're not really sure on exactly when, uh, and Dick ran the business until he passed away in 2021. And it looked like the lawyers were just going to sort of chop the thing up for scrap and get rid of it. And uh, so I kind of heard that that it was maybe on the chopping block. And I put together a group of, of investors and we bought the business. And uh, I guess I, my title is the president and CEO, but I feel more like the chief cook and bottle wash. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. We've hired, we've, last week we added two more employees and I think we're at 28 total employees now. We're growing like crazy, and we're the last company to uh, produce a production quality waterfowl decoy here, still in the United States, uh, and we're we're very very proud of that. So, 120,000 square foot factory. Uh, we're back into uh, Rogers Sporting Goods and Max Prairie Wings, and a number of, of mom and pop stores across the region. Sportsman's Warehouse picked us up this oh, year. Oh, cool! Uh, go check your local, local Sportsman's Warehouse for our decoys. So we're just trying to put the business back in the place that it was when it sort of fell from grace uh, in the 2000s uh, as our economy kind of got its its butt kicked by the Chinese. So, And uh, some of those 28 employees, were those, uh, was there a, a number of those folks that worked for the company originally that probably thought that they were out yeah. of a job? And Yeah, about, about half of them uh, had worked at the company previously, and we had to go find those people. And that was one of the tough parts of restarting the business. We, we bought the business from Dick's estate, and then we just had an empty building. We had a lot of machinery and all the old molds and all those things. But we didn't, we didn't even know how to turn the machines on because the instruction manuals were all gone. <laughs> you know, there's a process for turning on a, a Natco B30 blow molder. You got to heat this up first and turn this on second. And we didn't know even how to do all that stuff. And uh, we, we found the old general manager. I guess he was sort of still there at the business, kind of keeping the lights on, but nothing was going on there. And uh, Derek, you know, kind of used his connections out in town to figure out where everybody was going. And Derek sort of put the band back together. Uh, at one point, you know, we went to go find a guy named, named Jeff Leslie, who's our uh, shipping and outbound supervisor. And he was working at the Taco Bell. And uh, Derek went up there and had to find him in person at the Taco Bell. And said, "Hey, we're you know we somebody bought the factory and we're turning it back on, and we'd really love you to come back." And I think Jeff told him like, uh, "Hey, wait there one minute." And Jeff went in the back and told his his boss at the Taco Bell like, "Hey, I quit." 
uh, <laughs> and, and walked out and came to the came back to uh, to GNH. Unfortunately, you know, not a lot of jobs in this part of Oklahoma, and a lot of those folks had gone into fast food or were kind of between jobs, and so it was really it was really cool to be able to see those people come back. Uh, to something that they known and, and loved. Um, I think our most tenured employee is a guy named Dennis Gooden, who's been here for 38 years, I think, if that's right. Um, and he he's a really interesting guy. He rides a bicycle to work every day. Uh, he's, a, he's a widower. He's got uh, six kids. And working at GNH is what he's done for most of his adult life. And it's what he loves. And, you know, he still runs, a, in his 60s now, he still runs a, a blow molder every day. Wow, that's cool, man! You got the band back together, and um, that's an that's a really inspiring story. Um, is, is is anybody that um, has a small business, um, you, you run into all sorts of hiccups all the time, and uh, you know you got to kind of find the inspiration once in a while to keep to keep pushing on. And um, stories like this inspire someone like me, who's you know kind of still in the early stages of running a small business. It's like, well, hey, everybody that's done this has gone through. Um, a series of, of, of obstacles, you know, it's just like one big yeah. obstacle course that you have to learn to navigate and, and just keep pushing on. And um, yep. yeah, I think, you know, more than any, more than anything, maybe perseverance is the most, most important quality you can have. Yeah. You can appreciate it. Not, you know, not every day is wonderful. Some days suck. Yeah. Um, our website went down yesterday and that was not, you know, here we are in September, on the, on the eve before duck season in most of the country and our website went down and that was not a pleasant experience, uh, to have to deal with, but you're right. I mean, perseverance, right. You just got to keep your foot on the gas pedal and keep going. Yeah. Yeah, man, for sure. Um, on another note, you're, you're the father of six kids. Yeah. Maggie and I have six kids. I don't know how that happened. Um, everybody always looks at you and they say like all six, like you, yeah, like us too, all six kids. I don't know how, how it happened. We got started kind of early in life, earlier than we anticipated. And, uh, we had, we had one, she's, uh, she turned 16 back in July. She actually gets her driver's license this Friday. And I, I just don't know where the time has gone, but, uh, six kids and, uh, not all of them love to hunt and fish. Um, I've, I'd be curious to know, you know, what your experience as a father is like, you don't want to, you don't want to, you love something so much. You love fly fishing and you love, you know, I love duck hunting almost as much as I love fly fishing, but you love something so much. You want your kids to do it, but you don't want to force it on them because then they won't love it. Right. Um, so, you know, like my, my eldest daughter, my 16 year old, she doesn't, she loves to go down to the river with me. She'll ride in the boat with me. She'll go to deer camp with me. She didn't have any interest in picking up a rod or shooting a gun. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't, I'm still trying to figure this out, but you know, my sons on the other hand, can't get enough of it. Um, uh, Henry, my 10 year old got an aquarium for his birthday and he didn't want aquarium fish. Uh, he wanted me to drive him an hour and a half to the good smallmouth Creek. And he wanted to fill the aquarium with smallmouth. Uh, so that's what we did. And so, you know, they, they love it and they can't get enough of it, but, uh, I'm still trying to figure out like, how do you, how do you pass this on without, some of them willingly love it and accept it, but some of them need a little more encouragement. And that's a piece I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah. And I, I think that's a question that all of us parents that, that love the outdoors um, ask ourselves and, and, and struggle with. Cause uh, you know, my kids are 
certainly interested in in the outdoors they ask about going hunting uh, our son's eight and our daughter's five so we're still a couple years away from hunting um yeah but uh, but they both uh, express interest in it and they certainly like to go fishing but y- mm-hmm. you know it, it comes in small doses right if we go i'm not going to go take them out on a 10-hour float <laughs> sure you know i've been uh, for, sure. fortunate fortunately i've got a friend who has a little pond down the road that's stocked with big trout and i've been taking them down there because we can go down there for an hour or two and and they can catch fish versus you know i'm not going to go take them fly fishing on the on the blackfoot for instance yet um yeah so yeah i, I guess for now i'm just kind of trying to introduce it in in little increments and, and make it an experience yeah. that's enjoyable for everybody. Uh, my wife and I last. Do you, do you have uh, do you have fly rods in their hands, or do you start with conventional tackle? Conventional tackle. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But you know, I mean, my boy could he, he could certainly learn how to fly cast, and he he does fly cast a little bit. Like he loves to go to the shows with us. And then he'll pick up a fly rod and, you know, start teaching people, <laughs> um, which he's yeah. not qualified to do, but we're not going to deter his enthusiasm. Um, sure. But I, I don't know. I guess I, I kind of feel like uh, I really took to fly fishing when I was probably 12-ish, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And I think like maybe that age, you kind of have, you know, more uh, athletic ability um, and kind yeah. of all your faculties in place to to pick it up and, and appreciate it and kind of learn to learn to, you know, learn the, uh, everything about the sport. Cause I just feel like when, when you're eight, uh, you need instant gratification <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And you know, he, he really loves to, they both love to throw a spinning rod around. So I'm just going to stick with that for now. Yeah. I, I did the opposite. I guess I started my sons on, fly tackle and they can both throw throw a fly rod in fact a 10 year old throws a fly rod better than the than his 13 year old brother does mm. um but they i think this like desire to have something new and different and they discovered like uh texas rigging worms and you know all this different hardware stuff and all these different reels and they just like i i turned my back on them for a, for a second and they've you know scrounged up their pocket money or mowed somebody's yard and gone and bought themselves a new rod and reel and oh, uh, that's cool. You know, so they let, I, I'm, I'm not going to complain. I hope that someday they'll, they'll get into fly fishing with a little more fervor. I think, I think they'll eventually come around on it, but, uh, right now they're just, they're crazy for hardware. Well, nothing wrong with that. Um, and you know, no, that, catching fish is, <laughs> is good. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, for, for our kids, it's, uh, it's, they can have success, with the spinning rod, you know, on their own, which is really fun to watch. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. I, I'm just going to kind of take it slowly and, um, and, uh, yeah, just try to make it as fun as possible for now and not, yeah, not force that's, anything. That's yeah. Well, Ray, so the, the, uh, website for GNH is, is just gnhdecoys.com, right? That's the, uh, it's it's ghdecoys.com. We discovered early on that you can't put the ampersand symbol in a in a web address because it does some sort of computer code thing right. and it sends you to the moon. But uh, so it's ghdecoys.com is our website uh, on on social media. Uh, we're only on. I can't bring myself to to have the company do TikTok, um, but we're on Instagram <laughs> and Facebook. 
So uh, at GH Decoys on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, we try not to we try not to take ourselves too seriously. I feel like so many people in the waterfowl industry just got to be so serious about it. Like, man, there's so much more to, to hunting and, and it's the same thing for fishing. There's so much more to hunting than than just a big pile of dead birds. Uh, there's a, a lot of experience in there that I think gets ignored and, and left behind. So we, we try not to take ourselves too seriously on on social media, but uh, go go check us out. And, uh, we've, we've got some, we've got some cool things coming down the pipe, uh, later on this fall, we are doing a thing with, with BHA, but, uh, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers, I think is a great organization. Uh, that's kind of where you and I reconnected. Uh, we're doing a thing with them where, uh, every box of decoys that we sell from our website in the month of September comes with a free membership to BHA. Oh, nice. And then, uh, in six of those boxes uh between now and the end of september we're gonna put a golden duck in the box and uh the golden duck is kind of like the willy wonka golden ticket <laughs> uh in december we're gonna host this big event with bha where uh, in fact you should you should think about coming down for it we're gonna host this big event we're just calling it a duck camp on our front lawn in front of the factory uh go out scout some public land um get back together that friday evening uh eat a little barbecue and then get out Saturday morning and go hunt public land and then come back Saturday afternoon and, you know, drink some beers and uh, trade stories and sh- let people show off that banded mallard that they shot. And the, the six lucky winners that got a golden duck, uh, it's that entitles you to two free tickets to the event and you'll get a tour of our factory. And then every single one of those six people is going to leave with an additional special prize that they'll find out about. Uh, once they once they get here, it's not like Willy Wonka. Unfortunately, I'm not going to give the factory away to anybody, <laughs> but uh, it'll at least be a, a cool opportunity to uh, peek behind the curtain and uh, and take something home that you can use for the rest of your life. So, oh, that's super cool. That's a great idea, man. What a neat promotion. That's funny you said that because as soon as you said the Golden Duck, uh, Willy Wonka immediately popped in my head. So, yeah, that's uh, awesome. Not gonna lie, that we shamelessly ripped off that idea. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's clever, man. That's awesome. Um, uh, so the the tarpon that you hooked on the eight weight. Now, um, I want to get back to that real quickly. Um, were yeah. you uh, were you were you worried that that rod was going to break? I mean, I've, a sixty five pound tarpon is nothing to nothing to sneeze at. I know everyone's like, oh, sure. you know, two hundred pound tarpon. I'm old, I'm into the giant tarpon thing, but like, sure, if sure. you've ever caught a sixty pound tarpon, they are a load on a twelve weight. So, <laughs> um, I, I was, you know, it yeah. Admittedly, it was no, um, it was no Andy Mill two hundred and fifteen pound fish. But uh, it was in a kayak, especially in a kayak with an eight weight. Um, I was a little bit worried that the rod was going to break. Um, I, I was more worried that I, I, the thing I was most worried about was that I wasn't going to land the fish and I was going to exhaust it and kill it. That's what I was. That, that's what I was worried about. I knew from a couple of times when the fish kind of uh, beached for air, I knew that the uh, the fish was well hooked. I, the hook wasn't going to come undone. We could see that the thing was hooked square on the inside of the top of the mouth. And we felt like we had him, you know, hooked pretty good. Uh, I was worried that the, the fish was going to get exhausted and, and I wouldn't be able to get that hook out of his mouth and die. Um, I, we spent probably 20 minutes reviving that fish and making sure that it was healthy before we, we turned it loose. But uh, it was, it was, you know, it was exhausting. I think I had that fish on the line. For, I don't know, I guess, 
I guess Keenan could probably speak to it. I probably had that fish on on the line for for forty minutes. Um, and and Keenan's comment to me, and he is absolutely right. Is like, man, next time bring a ten weight for that fish. And <laughs> yeah, he's not right. Like, that's that's more fair to the more fair to the fish. Uh, and I I probably will bring it. Probably prudent to have you know even for a sixty five pound fish it might not kill you to have a an eleven or twelve weight in the boat with you uh, just to help you get it done faster. So. Right, right, but but you weren't necessarily expecting to run into a tarpon of that size, right? You were kind of thinking more. No, like- we th- yeah, we thought we were going to look for the the ten to twenty pounders that live back up in the mangroves, and these big fish started to roll out in the middle of the channel, and I just got a crazy idea to you know I wonder if I can get one to eat. Well, yeah, you got to throw the yeah. fly at them. Right, you go that way, go that far, you know, you got to got to try it. So I've never kayaked fished like that uh, for tarpon. Uh, yeah. What's it like uh, fighting the fish from a kayak and, and how did you land it? It was a, a rolling catastrophe for the entire time. <laughs> um, I was, I was, it was a pretty stable kayak. Um, it was, it was fish swimming around and underneath the boat. You know, you've had big fish on that want to go under a bigger boat. Um, and if you've got enough space and you're standing up, you can walk around the edges of the boat and you can kind of manage that that operation. But when your butt is planted in the boat and you can't, you, you can't really turn around in the boat either. You've got to figure out how to like pass your rod behind you. Um, I think at one point I had the fish like turning to go behind me and headed into the mangroves. And I had to kind of hand Keenan the rod for a second so I could flip the boat around and take the rod back from him. Uh, so Ke- poor Keenan didn't get to fish for the entire time that I was trying to land this, this big kid. But uh, it was, it was a wild adventure. Um, it was, it was a ton of fun. And, uh, you know, had I, had I to do all that over again, I'd, I'd rather have a, a skiff and a 12 weight, uh, or at least a 10 yeah. weight, but, uh, you know, it makes for, it makes for a great story. No doubt. Well, you did it the hard way, man. So good on you. Just like, uh, like Gene, Gene H decoys is, is doing things the hard way too, but that's, uh, yep. that's the way that, uh, that's the way that they always did it. And really cool that you're keeping that legacy alive. Um, Thanks again for taking the time to, to join me. Um, and it's ghdecoys.com. Um, your Instagram handle too is pennyflies, right? Pennyflies, that's me. Yep, at pennyflies. Cool. So uh, we can learn more about uh, about Ray and, uh, and G&H decoys in those two spots. And um, man, I appreciate you taking the time and cannot wait to reconnect with you somewhere, preferably in Puerto Rico, chasing tarpon out of a kayak. That sounds like like a yeah, I'm going to I'm going to send you a text after we get off here and uh, we really should think about uh, maybe a midsummer you you tell me when your low season is uh, when you can get time to go down there and uh, I'll sh- I'll show you the local flavor we'll eat in all the local halls uh, we'll go drink beer in the local dive bars and we'll go catch uh, the local fish Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests their fishing stories and favorite fly patterns We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.